Bible says in Revelation chapter 18, after all this, I saw another angel come down from heaven with great authority, and the earth grew bright with his splendor. He gave a mighty shout, Babylon is fallen, that great city is fallen. She has become a home for demons. She is a hideout for every foul spirit, a hideout for every foul vulture and every foul and dreadful animal. For all the nations have fallen because of the wine of her passionate immorality. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her because of her desires for extravagant luxury. The mer merchants of the world have grown rich. Verse 4. Then I heard another voice calling from heaven. Come away from her, my people. Do not take part in her sins, or you will be punished with her. For her sins are piled as high as heaven, and God remembers her evil deeds. Do to her as she has done to others. Double her penalty for all her evil deeds. She brewed a cup of terror for others, so brew twice as much for her. She glorified herself and lived in luxury, so, so match it now with torment and sorrow. She boasted in her heart, I am queen on my throne. I am no helpless widow, and I have no reason to mourn. Therefore, these plagues will overtake her in a single day death and mourning and famine. She will be completely consumed by fire, for the Lord who judges her is mighty, and the kings of the world who committed adultery with her and enjoyed her great luxury will mourn for her as they see the smoke rising from her charred remains. <clears throat> Verse 10, they will stand at a distance, terrified by her great torment, they will cry out, how terrible, how terrible for you, O Babylon, you great city. In a single moment, God's judgment came on you. The merchants of the world will weep and mourn for her, for there is no one left to buy their goods. She brought great quantities of gold, silver, jewels, and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, things made of fragrant thine wood. Now that is a wood, uh, fragrant wood, as it says, from North African, uh, from North Africa, and it's much like our cedar wood, a very valuable wood. Continuing in verse 12, ivory goods and objects made with, of expensive wood and bronze, iron, and marble. Verse 13, she also brought cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, wagons, and bodies, that is, human slaves. Verse 14, the fancy things you loved so much are gone, they cry. All your luxuries and splendor are gone forever, never to be yours again. The merchants who became wealthy by selling her these things will stand at a distance, terrified by her great torment. 
They will weep and cry out, how terrible, how terrible for that great city. She was clothed in finest purple and scarlet linens, decked out with gold and precious stones and pearls. In a single moment, all the wealth of the city is gone, and all the captains of the merchant ships and all their passengers and sailors and crews will stand at a distance. Verse 18, they will cry out as they watch the smoke ascend and they will say, where is there another city as great as this? And they will weep and throw dust on their heads to show their grief. And they will cry out, how terrible, how terrible for that great city. The ship owners became wealthy by transporting her great wealth on the seas. In a single moment, all is gone. Rejoice over her fate, O heaven and people of God and apostles and prophets, for at last God has judged her for your sakes. Verse 21. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a huge millstone. He threw it into the ocean and shouted, just like this, the great city Babylon will be thrown down with violence and will never be found again. The sound of harps, singers, flutes, and trumpets will never be heard in you again. No craftsmen and no traders will ever be found in you again. The sound of the mill will never be heard in you again. Verse 23, the light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The happy voices of brides and grooms will never be heard in you again. For your merchants were the greatest in the world, and you deceived the nations with your sorceries. In your streets flowed the blood of the prophets and of God's holy people, and the blood of people slaughtered all over the world. Wow. What an uplifting chapter. What an encouraging passage. <laughs> well, let's dig into it and let's see what applies to us here tonight. Revelation chapter 17 focuses on the religious system of the world. The religious system. Not upon the church, not upon those who have a personal relationship with Christ, but a religious system. You remember earlier we defined religion as humankind's attempt to reach God. I thank God that we are not religious because we will always fall short. There are many different religions. Robin and I have served on multiple occasions in India. And in India, there are 30 million gods, but there is not one God of love. And so when we meet people to strike up the conversation, we ask, which God do you follow? And we listen to them and they explain which God they follow and the reasons why. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes they will ask Robin or myself, well, which God do you follow? And we say, oh, we follow the God of love. God of love? We've never heard of such a God. And we said, well, maybe you would like us to tell you about that God of love. And there's an open door then to share the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. It's not about religion. 
It's about a relationship. Chapter 17, of course, focuses on the religious system of the world, the religious system that was being united by the power of Rome. But, very quick disclaimer, we must be very, very careful not to equate Rome with Catholicism. We have many wonderful Christian friends, born-again believers, who are a part of the Roman Catholic Church. Not everyone, but then again, not every Baptist is a Christian. Not every Presbyterian is a Christian. Not every Roman Catholic is a Christian. But there are Christians in different denominations. We'll talk about that later. And this is not a reference to the Roman Catholic Church, but to the, to the system of Catholicism. So just keep that in mind. Um, after the church is raptured, the remaining power and prestige of the church in Rome, and it is the largest in the world, it is the richest in the world, it will be manipulated by the Antichrist. And for those of you that have traveled uh, around the world, you know that in some countries, uh, Rome has huge power on the people in that particular country. And sometimes even it has huge power and influence even within that particular government. So this system will be manipulated by the Antichrist. The Roman Catholic, <coughs> the Roman Church will think that she's in control from headquarters in the Vatican City, but she'll inevitably suffer the same fate as the great prostitute. The Bible says in Revelation 17, verse 17 and 18, they will agree to give their authority to the scarlet beast. And so the words of God will be fulfilled. And this woman you saw in your vision represents the great city that rules over the kings of the world. So after the destruction of Babylon that we read about in Revelation 17, verse 15, <clears throat> what's left of the one world religious system will join with the Antichrist and the Ten Nation Confederation of Europe. It's interesting what has happened even in this past week in Europe, some of the political things that have taken place. This religious system will initially work with the Antichrist and the European Union, the revived Roman Empire. This religious system based in Rome will appear to control the European coalition of the revived Roman Empire and it will at first, but it won't last for long. These events will take place after the rapture, after those individuals, regardless of their political affiliation, regardless of their church denomination or lack thereof, those that are a part of a local body of believers that have made Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of their lives, that is the church that will be caught up to meet him in the air and that could happen as we said last week even tonight but we do know tonight as opposed to last week we are one week closer one day closer to that event happening the bible says the kings of the world will ultimately use this religious system based in rome to gain political control of the world but in a dramatic turn of events the great prostitute's allies will turn on her and destroy her. How do we know? The Bible tells us so. And this is how evil operates. An unholy alliance is an uneasy alliance. 
throughout history, it has never worked. Each partner puts its own interests first. And in the same way, we will be disgraced, will be denuded, will be devoured by any sin that we attempt to control rather than to confess. We can't control sin on our own. But we do have a wonderful option in confessing our sin. And the Bible says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We cannot take the poison out of our minds, out of our hearts, out of our lips. We can't do that. It's impossible. How do we know? The Bible tells us so. But he does it all. The work is finished on the cross. So like the great prostitute, we can ride the sin for a season. Oh, we can. We can be like that great prostitute arrayed in pearls, precious stone, purple robes of confidence. But eventually, like the great prostitute, we'll be burned and eaten up by the very sin that we thought we had control of. The Bible says in Revelation 17, 16, the scarlet beast and his ten horns all hate the prostitute. They will strip her naked, eat her flesh, and burn her remains with fire. Now this is a horrific verse. It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. But the language in this verse is purposely horrific because the wages of sin is even more horrific. Everlasting torment in a very real place that we studied earlier in our book of Revelation, and that place is called Gehenna, or hell. According to his own will, God will use the beast to destroy the false world system. We read about in Revelation 17, and then they will destroy Rome. And that is why Babylon is called the great prostitute, we learned in chapter 17. The politically correct religious system, where it's a big tent, everybody's welcome, you take your path and I'll take mine, and we all celebrate in the dawning of the age of Aquarius when everybody joins arms together and sings Kumbaya. It's popular. Everybody appreciates this and receives it, more so in some parts of our country than in others. For 20 years, Robin and I lived on the island of Maui in Hawaii, and there was one town called Paiea and it was full of crystals and unicorns, or the drawings of unicorns, and rainbows, and tea leaves, and tarot cards, and all this. And people would play their tambourines and play their flutes and dance around, and everybody was happy in whatever path you were on. That was wonderful. And you know, it reminds me of some places that I will not name that Robin and I have visited right here in Colorado. I will not name those places, but everybody's at peace and everybody's at harmony and you go your way and I'll go my way and we'll all meet together under the rainbow and sing kumbaya together won't it be wonderful and soon we'll all live in peace and harmony and there will be no more war well that's not what the bible says the bible says there's only one way there's only one way the way is narrow and that is the door to heaven through jesus christ and that is the only way well that's what's going to happen and so Babylon is called the prostitute in chapter 17, the politically correct religious system which is used, abused, and thrown away. 
So why is Babylon referred to in chapter 18, now that we're starting chapter 18, after seeing her destroyed in chapter 17? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because Revelation 17 refers to the false religious system Babylon represents. Revelation 18 refers to the literal city of Babylon. And that's where we are tonight, taking a look at this literal place. Chapter 17 refers to the religious Babylon. Chapter 18 refers to the political and economic Babylon. Now, the Old Testament uh, prophet Jeremiah, he foretold the total and complete destruction of Babylon. In addition, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah wrote, and I quote from Isaiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 19, Babylon, the most glorious of kingdoms, the flower of Chaldean pride, will be devastated like Sodom and Gomorrah when God destroyed them. Babylon will never be inhabited again. It will remain empty for generation after generation. Nomads will refuse to camp there, and shepherds will not bed down their sheep. Desert animals will move into the ruined city, and the houses will be haunted by howling creatures. Owls will live among the ruins, and wild goats will go there to dance. Hyenas will howl in its fortresses, and jackals will make dens in its luxurious palaces. Babylon's days are numbered. Its time of destruction will soon arrive. And we're going to see how that is going to be fulfilled, as written so long ago by Isaiah. Now, although Babylon was, in fact, destroyed by Alexander the Great, who really wasn't so great, if you study history, but Alexander the Great, in, eight, in 830 BC, there have always been small communities, a small number of inhabitants living in uh, what was Babylon. But Isaiah prophesied that not even shepherds and their flocks would stay in Babylon. Only wild animals would inhabit Babylon. So Isaiah's prophecy refers to the future destruction that we're going to look at tonight in Revelation 18 of physical Babylon. Verse 3 refers to a global commercial interaction with Babylon. Babylon is important. It has worldwide significance, economically especially. And because every nation has commercial interaction with Babylon, every nation is affected by Babylon. Because it's so strong, so wealthy, it impacts people all over the world. The Bible says in verse 3, all the nations have fallen because of the wine of her passionate immorality. The warning to my people refers to those who have become believers during the tribulation. Remember, we are already with our Lord in heaven. But there will be children born to those who became Christians during the tribulation. You remember 12,000 Billy Grahams, if you will, from each of the 12 tribes. That's 144,000 will go across the world saying Jesus was the Messiah all along. We recognize him. Our eyes have been opened. You need to come to him now and millions will follow. Millions will be saved during the tribulation by uh, predominantly Jews, by these evangelists. Uh, so 
uh, it's to these people that the voice cries from heaven in verse 4, come away from her, my people. Do not take part in her sins or you will be punished with her. So this great Babylon exists even during this time, at least the first half of the tribulation. Now, while Christians are called to love God and love people, we're also cautioned to be careful about getting too involved with secular practices and lifestyles. We talked about this last week, and I'm old enough to remember political movements, and I won't identify which political movement I was a part of, but I will tell you, well, yeah, I will tell you. It was called the Moral Majority, led by Jerry Falwell, well-known and highly respected evangelical. But that movement has come and gone. Other political movements in the same ideology have come and gone. From the liberal to the conservative to the middle of the road, political movements come and go. Our hope is not in any politician. Our hope is not in any political movement. We are to love God and love people unconditionally, and we are to put our faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus alone. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're citizens of the kingdom. And I'll stop preaching. But that's the truth. That's the truth. That doesn't say that we don't vote. No, we should vote. We should. That doesn't say that we shouldn't be informed. No, we should be informed. We're the light and the salt of our of our nation, of our community, but our hope is not in a certain political party or ideology. Our hope is in, only in Jesus Christ. So Christians are called to come out from them and be separate in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In verse 5 of Revelation 18, there's a reference to the Tower of Babel. Did you see it? You remember the initial goal of the Tower of Babel? Why is it called the Tower of Babel? It was in Babylon. <laughs> it was built in Babylon. This ziggurat, to be more precise, had a winding staircase up around the top. And in Genesis 11, verse 4, we read, it was to build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. King James says, reaches to heaven. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. Well, God had other plans. The only thing that reached up to the sky was their sin. And you remember the story. It reached up to the nostrils of God, and he was a stench to his nostrils. Did you notice in verse 7 how she, uh, quote, how she boasted in her heart, I am queen of my throne, I'm no helpless widow, and I have no reason to mourn. Babylon boasts. Babylon is proud. Proud that because of her interaction with all the nations, she has no reason to mourn. She's got it all. She's got everything in verse 7. Now that doesn't mean that Babylon won't experience sorrow but she refuses to experience it. She doesn't want to think about it, doesn't want to talk about it. Babylon is so absorbed in herself, in her own materialism, in her own economy, that she doesn't see the sorrow of people even within her own boundaries. Babylon is more than just a city. I would posit that it's most likely a nation, a nation that turns a blind eye to those that are hurting, to those that are hungry, to those that are suffering. Therefore, the Bible says in verse 8, these plagues will overtake her in a single day, death and mourning and famine. She will be completely consumed by fire. Now, the Bible speaks of a single day, and it is talking about a 24-hour period of time here. 
Babylon claims to be a queen and sees no reason to mourn, but God sees her quite differently. And God is going to judge her thoroughly, we read in verse 8. So not wanting to be tormented, the Bible says her leaders will flee to a safe place. This brings us to the news of the last 48 hours. The Bible says in verses 9 and 10, the kings of the world who committed adultery with her and enjoyed her great luxury will mourn for her as they see a smoke rising from her charred remains. They will stand at a distance, terrified by her great torment. They will cry out, how terrible, how terrible for you, O Babylon, you great city. In a single moment, God's judgment came upon you. Verses 9 and 10. This utter destruction within a single moment could very well be, I would say very likely, be the result of a nuclear exchange. The nuclear fallout from that nuclear exchange would explain why the kings of the world would stand at a distance. Now, as most of you know, yesterday, ABC News, CNN, CBS, NBC, the Times of London and other major news media reported that Kiev, Ukraine, began preparations to distribute potassium iodine pills to evacuation centers throughout Kiev and in other populated areas in the Ukraine. I'm going to quote from the London Times, as cited uh, in the New York uh, Times. I quote, if taken right before or right after exposure to nuclear radiation, potassium iodine tablets can assist in preventing the thyroid gland from absorbing damaging radiation. This comes at a time when Moscow, and I'm still quoting here, is rattling its nuclear saber as its soldiers continue to be driven back even when Russia declared four Ukrainian regions as their own. The article goes on to say, in response to your Ukrainian counterattack, Russian President Vladimir Putin has pledged to use, and I quote, use all means at our disposal to win the conflict, including nuclear weapons, to reverse the tide after suffering significant losses and being driven back in numerous places. The news outlets and papers go on to report, and I'm quoting, according to the ABC News report, the Times newspaper uh, claimed on Monday that, NATO military, that the NATO military alliance had warned members that Putin has been planning to conduct a nuclear test near Ukraine's border to show his preparedness to use nuclear weapons. This is within the last 48 hours. The Times further reported that Russia has moved a train allegedly connected to a nuclear munition facility. This has been reported by numerous outlets. That train contain, containing those delivery system devices is already reached the border of Ukraine. This is within the last 24 hours. There are those that would, have, would say that the United States is at greater peril to being attacked by a nuclear device today than at any time in modern history 
since the 1961 um, missile crisis in, in Cuba. And you remember President Kennedy and his brother Robert Kennedy and others were hunkered down in the White House. They didn't leave for 12 consecutive days. Our nation became, you can go back and read documentaries on this now, a lot of it has been declassified. Fascinating, we were this close to nuclear war, but it was not God's time. Perhaps this is his time, I don't know. I do not know. But did you notice that no one was mourning the huge loss of life in Babylon? Now they weren't mourning the huge loss of life in Babylon, but rather, verse 11, quote, the merchants of the world will weep and mourn for her, for there is no one left to buy their goods. Hey, we can't sell our stuff as quickly as we did before. Verse 12 and 13, it's like, have you ever been to Lloyd's of London? I was on an emergency trip to help rescue some hostages from, from Mozambique, Africa, and we had a layover in London for a day, and I'd never been to Lloyd's of London, and so the Attorney General from the state of New Hampshire, a wonderful Christian man who went with me, and a couple of other men that were with me, he said, let's, let's, let's go to Lloyd's of London and get, get some supplies because the next stop is going to be Africa. And if you've never been there, it's a big store. Lloyd's of London, it's huge. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a big, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a great big store. And I reminded that verse 12 through 13, Remind me, reminded me as I went up the escalator, or the uh, elevator in uh, this, this store, uh, of the, maybe on the first floor you'd find jewelry. In the Bible states, gold, silver, and pearls. The second floor, clothing. In the Bible states, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth. The next floor, home furnishings. The Bible states, fragrant thine wood. We talked about that, that cedar-like wood from Northern Africa. Ivory goods. Objects made of expensive wood and bronze, iron, and marble. The next floor, cosmetics, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense. The next floor is my favorite, the food court. Wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat. And then the next floor would be Dr. John's favorite floor, the livery and farm supply floor, cattle, sheep, horses, wagons. And then down in the basement, hidden away, human trafficking. The Bible says bodies, human slaves. There are more human slaves in the world right now than there has ever been in all of history. You're aware of human trafficking. That's just a politically polite word for slavery. And it is happening here in the Roaring Fork Valley. It is happening in all 50 states. It is happening, I would guess, in every nation on the face of the earth. Did you notice that every one of these items are luxuries? Babylon specializes in materialism gone mad. That's what Babylon is known for. Babylon is the city that drives the world economy. Everyone who exported from or imported to her is questioning how they will now be able to buy or sell in verses 14, 15, 16, 17. The people's response 
to the destruction of Babylon is to weep and wail because they aren't going to be able to make as much money as they could before. But heaven's response is to rejoice, verses 17 through 20. The Bible says the entire life of the city comes to a complete halt in the aftermath of what likely is a nuclear exchange. Now, the Bible does not say nuclear exchange, but it sure describes it in verses 17 through 20. It's at this time that an angel hurls a huge millstone into the ocean as an illustration of the swiftness of Babylon's judgment in verse 21. Did you notice that Babylon's merchants were the greatest in the world and deceived the nations with sorcery? Now, the word translated sorceries is pharmakia. Many of you know that, the Greek word, or drugs. We get our English word pharmacy from this. And did you notice that Babylon has caught the entire world in her web of drug trafficking? Although drugs are manufactured in different countries and imported into the United States, there are more drugs manufactured in the United States of America than any other nation on the face of the earth, including Colombia, Mexico, Turkey, you name it. They all manufacture drugs, but more drugs are manufactured in the United States than any nation in the world. I'm speaking of illicit drugs, illegal drugs. And by far, the United States is the greatest consumer of illicit drugs or illegal drugs of any nation in the world. You can go online, check this, multiple sources. Did you notice the Bible says in verse 24, in your streets flowed the blood of the prophets and of God's holy people and the blood of people slaughtered all over the world. Did you know that since 1900, an average of 1,000 I'm sorry, of 150,000, I'm sorry, 250,000, quarter million, evangelical Christians have been martyred every year, and there's no let-up. That continues. This is an average. Today, martyrdom is taking place on a horrific scale. Christians are being martyred in places like Iran. Turn on the news. Dig for it a little bit. North Korea, Afghanistan. And the list goes on and on. A quarter million people on the average every year, Christians, evangelical Christians, taking a stand for Jesus Christ, martyred every year because of their faith since 1900. The greatest number of those persecuted has taken place in China. But rather than taking a stand against the bloodshed that is taking place in China, not in the big cities, Robin and I have taken the bullet train in China, we've visited churches and missionaries in China, but it's in the rural areas. It's off the radar where this persecution has taken place. And rather than taking a stand against this bloodshed, our country continues to grant China most favored nation status. Why? In order that her one and a half billion people can buy our cars, our electronics, our goods that we sell to China and that we can bring and fill our stores as well. The Bible says Babylon will become the center of world commerce during the tribulation. 
It will be the center of world commerce during the tribulation. And although we simply don't know where the Babylon of Revelation is located, we do know the revived Roman Empire, a restored Russia, a Chinese-Asian coalition, and Israel are all clearly seen in the end times. But, 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 but America is strangely absent. You really have to twist and turn like a pretzel to do some incredible ecclesiastical interpretations to find the United States in Scripture. Some say they have, but it's pretty hard to see it clearly there. This could be explained why the United States is not found in Scripture by a devastating nuclear exchange described in Revelation 18. And I believe that right now we are as close to such an exchange of nuclear weapons. When you take a look at the big picture, who's in charge in Russia? Who's in charge in North Korea? Who's in charge in the United States of America? And all the different players and the dynamics that are going on, I believe that we are closer to such a nuclear exchange right now than we have ever been in the history, the short, relatively short history of our country. It could be explained by the fact that due to a large percentage of Christians practicing their faith, filling the small country churches as well as the big mega churches across our land, it could be that America is disabled as a result of the void they leave after the rapture. In other words, flyover country, and Denver is not exactly flyover country, but we're surrounded by flyover country with the East Coast, the West Coast, and all the little towns and villages. Robin and I have driven across the country, and every day I spoke at a different church or a different Bible study or a different breakfast or lunch or dinner where Christians gathered together and across our land we have many many believers and they are serving in important roles in transportation in business and the education the list goes on and on the East Coast and the West Coast and maybe a little bit of Denver and Chicago they get most of the news but there's a big country out there and there are a lot of wonderful Christians out there, a lot of wonderful little country churches, a lot of faithful pastors, and they continue to just follow Jesus with all their heart, mind, and soul. And so it could be that when the rapture takes place, there won't be that much left of the United States. Maybe the rapture happens just after one last revival sweeps our land and people come to their senses and they realize that our hope is not in a political party, in a political personality. Our hope is not in this cause or that cause. Our only hope is in Jesus Christ. Like the old gospel song says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust this, this sweet refrain, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. I grew up in a church where we sang that old gospel hymn. Maybe you recognize it, maybe you don't, but it's true today. So it could be a devastating nuclear exchange that will wipe out America. It could be that the rapture will take place and there's just not much left of America. Or it could be that America, in fact, is the great Babylon. Let's continue on in chapter 19, verse 1. After this, 
Verse 1, chapter 19 of Revelation. After this, I heard what surrounded like a vast crowd in heaven, shouting, Praise the Lord! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgments are true and just. He has punished the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged the murder of his servants, and again their voices rang out, Praise the Lord! The smoke from that city ascends forever and ever. Verse 4. Then the 24 elders and the four living beings fell down and worshiped God who was sitting on the throne. They cried out, Amen. Praise the Lord. And from the throne came a voice that said, Praise our God, all his servants, all who fear him, from the least to the greatest. Verse 6. Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or roar of a mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord. For the Lord our God, the, our God, the Almighty, reigns. Verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice, and let us give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. Verse 9. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, These are true words that come from God. Verse 10, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said, No, don't worship me. I am a servant of God, just like you and your brothers and sisters who testify about their faith in Jesus. Worship only God, for the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. Verse 11, then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. Verse 14. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. That's us, gang. That's us. Verse 15. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release his fierce, the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe, at his thigh, was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, shouting to the vultures flying high in the sky, Come, gather together for the great banquet God has prepared. Come and eat the flesh of kings, generals, and strong warriors, the horses and their riders, and of all humanity, both free and slaves, small and great. Verse 19, Then I saw the beast, and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast, miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who had worshipped the statue. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Verse 21. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding the white horse, and the vultures all gorged themselves 
on the dead bodies. We find two great banquets. One, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will be. The other, the feast of the dead bodies in the valley of Megiddo, Armageddon. Everyone will partake of one feast or another, and the choice is yours. Revelation 19 takes place after the destruction of Babylon. Remember, the political and commercial epicenter of the world. The people left alive on planet Earth will be mourning the destruction of Babylon. That was the banking capital, the commercial center, the financial center of the world. But heaven rejoices, the Bible says in verses 1 and 2. Why? Because that which seemed to be so terrible on planet Earth will be righteous and perfect from the vantage of heaven. The same is true in our own lives. Why doesn't God simply show us his whole plan right now? Wouldn't that be wonderful? If we knew how many days we had, if we knew, are we going to have enough resources to make it till that last day? All these questions. Why doesn't he show us? Because, because he's teaching us to walk by faith, not by sight, to put our hope in him and in him alone not in our 401ks, not in our land holdings, not in our education, our personality, whatever it might be. Why? Because he knows that developing faith in us is absolutely necessary in light of what he'll be doing through us throughout eternity. Oh, he's going to continue to use us, and we're going to continue to be amazed. We'll get there. Amen in verse 4. You, know, you all know what that word means. So be it. We've talked about that. Did you know that alleluia mean, means praise the Lord? And did you know that amen and alleluia are the only universally known words? I've worked in about 70 different countries around the world in my lifetime. I've lived as a missionary in the most primitive country in the world and, and uh, traveled different places. Everywhere I've gone, people know the word amen and they know the word alleluia. Everywhere. Little churches that Robin and I have been to, way at the top of the Himalayas, we hear the words, Amen and Alleluia. Even though we may not speak the language, we know. In the jungles of Vanuatu, the most linguistically diverse nation in the world per capita, all these different tribal languages, Amen and Alleluia. They're universal. They're understood by every culture. And in verses 1 through 4, the elders are the ones who say, So be it. Praise the Lord. In fact, you may have remembered that passage in verses 1 through 4 may sound a bit familiar because it was Handel, the great composer, who took this, these very verses from this very chapter of Revelation uh, to comprise the great Alleluia Chorus. And when the Queen of England heard, heard that for the first time, she stood up. And of course, when the Queen stands up, everybody stands up. And to this day, the tradition continues when the Alleluia Chorus is sung and by choirs, whether they be secular or in a church, uh, almost always everybody rises to their feet. Alleluia in Hebrew is Hallelujah, Hallelujah, which means praise Jehovah. That's what it means. The only place Hallelujah is used in the New Testament is right here in Revelation 19. 
You won't find it any place else in the entire New Testament. The Bible says in verses 7 and 8, Let us be glad and rejoice, and let us give honor to him, for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride. That's us, gang. That's us. We're the bride of Christ. The bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the righteousness of God's holy people. Now there will be guests, we've learned, at the wedding. The guests are not us. We're the bride. The guests are those who have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ after the rapture. Then they will join as well. But we're the bride. But you say, oh, David, uh, the righteousness of God's holy people, I'm far from righteous. You don't know the half of the things I've done. Well, in the book of Isaiah, we find what the righteousness of God's holy people is. The Bible says in Isaiah 61.10, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, for he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness. I am like a bridegroom dressed for his wedding or bride with her jewels. Wow. It's nothing I've done. It's nothing you've done. It's nothing we haven't done. It doesn't matter how many Bible verses you've memorized, how many hours a day you spend in your devotions, how many hours a day you pray, how many people you've led to the Lord, how long you've been a Christian, how often you come to church. It's none of that. The Bible says that is all filthy rags. It's nothing about us. It's all about him. It's everything that he has done for you and for me. The Bible says my righteousness is as filthy rags in Isaiah 64, but it's the robe of righteousness that the Lord places on me, on you, that enables us to enter into the marriage feast of the Lamb, Revelation 19. Now the apostle John was so blown away by seeing the bride, he falls at the feet of the angel, we read in verse 10, but the angel said, don't worship me. Don't worship me, I'm just a fellow servant. Jesus never says, don't worship me. The angel says, don't worship me. But Jesus never says, don't worship me, I'm just an angel. Which brings us to an interesting point. As you know, our Mormon friends, our Jehovah's Witness friends, they believe that Jesus is really nothing more than an angel. They respect Jesus, but they believe that ultimately he's just an angel. This is completely erroneous. Jesus deserves worship because he is way more than an angel. The angels worship him. He never calls himself an angel. The Bible never calls Jesus an angel. Jesus is God. He calls himself God and others call him God. In verse 11, the door of heaven opens. In Revelation 4.1, the door is opened for the entrance of the raptured church. Revelation 4.1, we go, we meet our Lord in the air, we go to the mansions that have been prepared for us. We talked about the Jewish wedding and the analogy of the Jewish wedding even to this day and how he's preparing a place for us. And when God says, to the son, go, he is going to come with a great shout, yay, it's finally here. And he's going to breed us, his bride, and he's going to say, oh, isn't she beautiful? Not because 
what we've done. <laughs> it's because of what he has done. He sees us perfect without sin. In Revelation 4.1, that happens. In Revelation 19.11, the door is opened again for the exit of the church. We have been with our Lord in a honeymoon for seven years. And just like the, even to this day, the Jewish traditional uh, wedding for seven days, the bride and the groom are sequestered for seven years. You and I, as the bride of Christ, we'll be sequestered with the groom in glory. Then we are going to come back with him. He's gonna be leading the charge. We're not fighting, we don't have to fight. We just get to ride on those beautiful white horses. It's better than any Dr. John has ever seen as a veterinarian. And Jesus is gonna have a tattoo on his thigh, the Bible describes, and we're going to see marvelous things take place when he returns to planet Earth. When we return to planet Earth with Jesus at his second coming, we see that he has many crowns on his head. Many crowns, what does this mean? Well, I believe this represents um, all the de denominations within the church who crown Jesus as Lord. We have friends, besides our local church, in different denominations. In fact, we're not even a denominational church, and that's okay. There are other churches that are not denominational. There are other churches of different denominations. They, they attest Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. We talked about that. And, and it, it, some leaders of some churches, you know what I'm talking about, they wear big hats and they sprinkle water on people. You know that. Leaders of other churches, well, they wear fancy suits and they have slicked down hair and sparkling teeth <laughs> and lots of people watching them on television. <laughs> the leaders of other churches, they wear baseball caps and Levi's and uh, often a t-shirt that says, love God, love people. <laughs> but, but God has his children in the congregation of every one of these churches. And he breaks through the barriers that too often divide them, and he makes himself known. In addition, the Bible speaks of a name written on him that no one understood except himself. Names, as we've talked about, have meaning. They reveal a person's character. If you don't know what your name means, so many ways to find out, just Google it, and uh, you'll find what it means, and whether it's Hebrew or Greek or Latin or German or whatever it might be. They reveal a person's character. Verse 12 suggests that there's a part of the character of our Lord Jesus Christ that's not understood by anybody except himself. And I believe we'll be amazed when we see Jesus because none of us know him now the way we will know him eventually. His eyes are not like fire to consume us. They're burning with love for us as individual. He sees us not because of the wrongs that we've done, but he sees us perfect in his sight because we are perfect because of what he's done for us on the cross. We'll be amazed when we see Jesus. The, the way we'll know him eventually will be nothing like the way we know him now. I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. We'll spend eternity 
exploring his character, astounded by his beauty, awed by his holiness, and amazed by his love. The Bible says we only see through a glass darkly this side of heaven. The Bible says it's his blood that cleanses me from my impurity. He washes me from my stupidity. I'm pure not because of my efforts, but because Jesus shed his blood for me. So the door of heaven is open and clothed in the finest of pure white linen, we come with our Lord, not to fight, but to marvel as he secures the victory. Verses 13 and 14. The Bible says, from the mouth of Jesus came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. Our time is up tonight, but this sharp sword refers to the word of God. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, for the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. Well, here we have to stop. We're on our way after seven years with our Lord in a honeymoon in glory. We're on our way riding white horses, and they're all perfect specimens. Sorry, Dr. John, they don't need a veterinarian. Perfect specimens. Our Lord is leading the way, and he has a tattoo that describes him in ways that we don't even know we can't begin to imagine, on his thigh. And from his mouth comes a sword. Have you seen those pictures I have of this big sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus? Kind of reminds me of a circus stunt. You know, the sword swallowers? I don't think that was gonna be. I don't think it's gonna be like a circus with this giant sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. I believe it's the very word of God, the word of God that's quick and powerful two-edged sword, and by the very words of Jesus Christ, the battle will be won. I was going to describe the battle in detail tonight. That will be for next week, so you're welcome to join us next week. You're welcome to invite a friend. We'll have a new handout. We'll finish up Revelation chapter uh, 18, and we'll go on to do Revelation chapter 19 and maybe chapter 20, and then we're only two more chapters till we finish the study of the book of Revelation. If you're watching online, we're so glad you joined us. And you can uh, tune in and re-watch this again if you missed anything. You can also contact The Orchard or contact office at theorchardlife.com. Did I get that right, Henry? Office at theorchardlife.com. And we'll be happy to tell you how you can get a complete set of notes, every verse, every chapter of the book of Revelation that we've gone over. So may God bless you. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. It indeed is sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you, Father, that we don't have anything to fear. Thank you that you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and of a sound mind, and how your word overwhelmingly uh, supports uh, the fact that you are coming for us again to save us from the horrors that will come soon upon planet Earth. So until that time comes, Lord, may we be faithful and loving God and loving people and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. 
as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Blessings to you, and thanks for joining us tonight.